Welcome to another episode of Axel Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. How are you doing today? Doing pretty well. We just got done doing our live Blood God stream. In case you missed it, we were doing it for Black Lives Matters. And you can hear that segment later in the episode. We were talking about social commentary in RPGs, but especially racism. Yes, always a good topic. Always a fun topic to tackle. Actually, it was a really good discussion. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think we had a great conversation. We touched on everything from how Final Fantasy VII Remake handled Barrett's character pretty well, if I would say so myself, to how Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines didn't handle things so well. And we also talked about... (laughs) Uh, Dragon Age, Mass Effect, a uh, whole mess of games. You you talked at some length about Valkyria Chronicles. I strongly recommend that you have a listen. Yes, uh, definitely have a listen. I enjoy talking about Valkyria Chronicles. Uh, I don't often get to talk to that much about like Jewish issues in games, but that was a big one. And in addition to that, we're going to talk very briefly about the Outer Worlds. And we are uh, specifically the port for the Switch and how it really does not hold up, unfortunately. And we have our track of the week coming up. If you want to follow us on Twitter or support Acts of the Blood God, well, the first thing that you can do is leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcast podcatcher of your choice. We always enjoy seeing positive reviews from people who enjoy the show It brightens our day, and it also increases the visibility of the podcast to have good reviews. It's very exciting. I'm on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And all of our social accounts for US Gamer are at usgamernet. And uh, we also have a newsletter that comes out every single Wednesday. Nadia, what was the talk in the newsletter this week? Uh, This week I kind of expanded outwards from a topic I think we have tackled on the show once or twice, and that is like, you know, the best kinds of mounts in an RPG. And we have talked at length about basically airships versus everything else. And as I have said in the past, and as I said in the newsletter, I am the kind of person who does not really care that much about airships. Like, oh boy, they're mechanical things that fly. That's great. And that's really good for you. I want to basically fly on weird things like dragons and, and and weird horses that like gallop through the air and I like flying on animals like when I was a kid I was the kind of kid who would watch She-Ra not because I cared about She-Ra but I just liked her flying horse I wanted that flying horse so bad no kidding uh, I <laughs> hmm I think that it's easier to feel attached to a mount right like they exactly. kind of have a yes. lot more personality than your average airship i think airships don't have faces i faces. i'm trying to think of my favorite i i think i like every single horse mount just in general and i especially yeah. like games that let me catch a horse and have uh, a different color uh like in the witcher 3 i think you get like a fancy imperial horse mount at a certain point <laughs> that kind of thing yeah, um, Red Dead 2 has a couple of quests where you catch, like, Arabian horses, which are really, really great horses, and I'll, I always remember those quests because the first one is, like, a white Arabian that you gotta catch in a snowfield, and that was that was pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I just think that it is really cool when you can uh, have a, some degree of choice and customization in your mount. You can paint, paint your horse. <laughs> paint your horse red. Okay, uh, so Nadia, I played The Outer Worlds on Nintendo Switch. 
Yes, and uh, to this day, like until yesterday, I thought you were playing like a part of the Outer Wilds, which is a totally <laughs> different game. I thought it was funny because you were like, "Man, I really love that game." I'm like, "Wow, you played the Outer Worlds? I didn't realize that you had such strong feelings <laughs> on it, Nadia." <laughs> No, it was funny because I'm looking at your review, and of course the review has the header of the character standing like away from the character, uh, away from the viewer, and I'm like, I don't remember the alien from the Outer Wilds having such a toned ass. Like I literally thought that to myself, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's the Outer World. Oh God, I'm an idiot. The curse lives on, right? It really does, and that's too bad because Outer Wilds, if you haven't played it, uh, is a great game. It did have some technical jank though. So when you were talking about the jank on the Switch, I was just like, oh yeah, that that doesn't surprise me. I didn't realize it was for the Outer Worlds, which, as you said, was is actually quite janky, and you're not the only one saying that. Yeah, the Outer Worlds had a fair share of jank on other platforms as well, but especially on the Nintendo Switch. I think our friends over at Digital Foundry did a really good job taking a hard look at that port and whether or not it was successful. And so we weren't that kind to the Outer Worlds last year when we were doing our 2019 RPG wrap-up, which feels like, you know, multiple lifetimes ago (laughs) at this point. A million years ago. Yeah. Uh, we were kind of talking about how it was very conventional in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. But it, at the same time, it's still worth playing in my estimation. It is a fun, sometimes witty RPG that uh, really gives me Futurama vibes in a lot of respects, down to mm-hmm. the fact that it has a Farnsworth character in Phineas Wells. And <laughs> Oh, I made myself sad. And it also... Kind of like Futurama really pays homage to the Tomorrowland retro future kind of look of the world. So Mm -hmm. uh, I always liked that it takes place in an alternate universe where President McKinley did not die. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And that's why we have hyper capitalism because President McKinley was uh, kind of the president who defined the Gilded Age capitalism where... All the corporations were 100% in control, and that is what the Outer Worlds also posits. It has a really good opening quest in which you need to get a power converter for your spaceship to start, and you can basically choose to get it from uh, the evil corporation or from the local settlement that the evil corporation wants to destroy. And it's a little heavy-handed, but at the same time, it really lets you choose where you stand in a lot of ways. Well, it kind of gets you right out of the gate, doesn't it? Okay, make your choice now. If you want to talk about social commentary in games, uh, The Outer Worlds has a lot of it, and it's very clear where it stands, which is to say that it does not care for hyper-capitalism or corporations in general, I think. I actually am not very familiar with the presidency that you mentioned earlier. Like, what year was that? It was in the 1890s. Uh, oh, President McKinley okay. was is often compared to George W. Bush in that ah. he was a bit of a toady for the, the capitalists. Uh, if I recall correctly, he helped start the Spanish-American War. That well, He was basically bullied into it in a lot of ways, uh, which was considered to be kind of an imperialist venture by America. And he, uh, well... He was considered to be a safe candidate, but he had a vice president that the parties considered dangerous in Teddy Roosevelt. And mm. the worst nightmare of both the Republicans and the Democrats was that Teddy Roosevelt should get elected. And then an anarchist came up and shot William McKinley, and he died. 
and President and Teddy Roosevelt became president. And fascinating guy. I think Teddy Roosevelt's actually my favorite president in a lot of respects. Um, I gotta say, American history is really freaking hardcore. Like, I mean, Canadian history certainly has its like share of like you know fascism and and colonialism by by all means, but it's also very subdued. Like. He, this was the prime minister. He was drunk. The end. Like, <laughs> it's just didn't don't really have as many overthrows and, and whatnot. There are many good stories. Like the time that somebody came up to assassinate Andrew Jackson. He survived, and he beat them with his cane. Yeah, that one I know. Yeah, I mean, he was a bastard, but that's a pretty hardcore story. Andrew Jackson was a real bastard. But getting back to the outer worlds, uh, I think John Linneman put it well when he said that. Uh, the Outer Worlds shows that you can port some RPGs to Nintendo Switch or some games to Nintendo Switch, but the question gets to be, should you? And maybe the answer in this case is no. I wish that I could recommend The Outer Worlds to our listeners and be like, yeah, if you haven't played it, well, even though the port's a little rough, you should still pick it up. Uh, even then, I still don't think I can because uh, the graphics take such a hit. And it there's so many compromises that it's just really distracting. Like there's this heavy blur over th- everything, Nadia, to the point that I started oh. to get a lot of get a headache while trying to play yeah, it. Yeah, I don't want that. No, uh, frame um, rate drops, and it's too bad because I would like more games like The Outer Worlds on Switch. Uh, I think it kind of filled a gap, and I was really getting into it, you know, just playing on a handheld. But I don't know. Don't think it works. Yeah, that's the thing with the Switch. It can work, but it takes work to make it work. Uh, sorry for the redundancy. Like, I mean, we know that the port of Dragon Quest XI for the Switch, uh, barring a couple of complaints I have, is probably the best way to play that game. It, the graphics do take a hit, but it's so slight that you just don't even notice, even if you played the PS4 version of the game. Uh, the Witcher does take a hit, but not to the point that it's distracting. So it can be done, but you really have to know what you're doing is what it comes down to. And it sounds like I don't want to like say, oh, they rushed it or, oh, they didn't do a good job. They didn't try hard enough. But it does seem like there's a certain magic to making a switch port. And if you don't adhere to that magic, you're going to end up with a mess. Yeah, the porting studio, I think they're virtuous. I think that's the one. Yeah. They've worked on games like Dark Souls Remastered and things like that and have a actually a somewhat decent track record. But maybe The Outer Worlds was more than they could chew because it was a blockbuster RPG developed on Unreal Engine 4, and there was a lot to it. And uh, I don't know, when I talked to Leonard Boyarsky and Tim Kaine, or just Leonard Boyarsky, actually, about the Switch port, they said they were really surprised and kind of amazed at what uh, they were able to pull off. And uh, the development studio was going, yeah, we're, we're going to be able to do, we're targeting 1080p while docked and it's going to be 30 FPS. And Oof. Uh, it really is not 1080p, that <laughs> game. It's, it's blurry as all get out. So. I actually heard once, I don't know how true it is, but yes, the Switch, as I have heard, I said once to someone, uh, I hear that the Switch doesn't play nice with Unreal Engine. And they said the Unreal Engine doesn't play nice with anything. <laughs> but I once heard that basically the reason Dragon Quest XI took so long is because they had to put it on a totally different engine or rewrite something. I don't know how true that is, but apparently that was the way to go. Well, in hap- uh, well, unfortunately, can't recommend The Outer Worlds. Don't pick it up. But in happier reporting news, Slay the Spire is coming to iOS, and so you'll never see me again after this, Nadia. 
Yeah, this is this is a dangerous thing for me because, as we have talked about in the past, Slay the Spire is a, is a really excellent card RPG, and uh, it can eat up your time in, in no time flat. It's good because I'm pretty much done with uh, Fire Emblem Heroes at this point. Oh, are you what finally, like, or, or so you say, but like what finally uh, <laughs> made you throw it away? I don't know. I just, I feel like I've done everything I want to in that game. Um, mm-hmm. I've played all of the post-content ad nauseum. I have tons of characters. I tried to draw against the most recent banner, which had um, some dragon girl. and Isn't one of the dragon girls again. Yeah, and... I ended up getting a lot of characters that I already had. And so I was able to merge right. them and get more powerful characters as a result. But when I did actually get a new character, I couldn't really be bothered to actually build them up. At a certain point, you've played the game so much that it starts to be like, yeah, okay, I've gotten everything I want out of this game. Yeah, sometimes I do that, but then I, I come back to the game after a good rest. So you might still wind up doing that. Yeah, I guess they just wrapped up book three and have started book four now. Oh, okay. I actually want... Do they ever put the Tagwell in? I always like the Tagwell. Oh, wait. Is book three... Oh, book... No, I finished book three. Book four is the one with the uh, the fairies. Uh, are you referring to the beast characters? Uh, specifically, they're rabbits from uh, Awakening. No, I don't... Oh, yeah. They're, yeah, they're rabbits. Yeah. Oh, I gotta play now. Murder rabbits. Yeah, yeah, murder rabbits. Giant murder rabbits. Yarn and Pan were my favorite characters from, uh, from Awakening. They might be in here. Uh, yell at me, dear listeners, if that's not <laughs> the case. But I uh, don't use them because they're not very good. But they, I'm pretty sure there are murder rabbits. I do remember that. Uh, basically, what happened with me was I think I wound up breeding uh, Gaius with uh, Pan. And they had a, a kid, Yarn, who was just crazy fast. So we had a crazy fast murder rabbit going all over the battlefield. That was That was a good time. Crazy fast murder rabbit. Anyway, so yeah, maybe I'll play Slay the Spire in place of Fire Emblem Heroes at this point. I'm actually interested that it's not on the Apple Arcade. It's a separate purchase from what I understand. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Like, That's it's good be because I don't like... want Apple Arcade. Exactly. I had Apple Arcade and I basically unsubscribed after a couple of, of months because it's like, okay, well, all the games that are really good, or most of them are already out on the Switch. Like, I have Sinar Wild Hearts. I have Earth Knight. Um, Slay the Spire, I think it's going to be like 10 bucks, which is fair enough. So yeah, I'll probably just grab it. There's only one kind of game that I want to play on my, on my iPhone and Slay the Spire is pretty much it. <laughs> exactly. Like it's not a game that inqui- that requires any sort of intense, like graphics. It's a very simple looking game. Uh, it's, it's static for the most part. So it, it is actually perfectly suited for the iOS. If you want a good card battling game, by all means, grab it once it comes out to iOS. Or you can grab it on Switch. It's on Switch. It's on everything, isn't it? Okay, Nadia, on that note, I think it's time that we move on to the next segment, which, of course, we talk about social commentary and games. We were going to be talking, we were going to be doing a live episode this week, and we were going to be talking about, you know, the PS5 and next-gen RPGs and that kind of thing. But, uh, well, events kind of resulted in things not really working out. Um, Yeah, life throws a curveball at you once in a while. I mean, in another life, we would have been at E3 this week, so... I know, isn't that weird? It's so strange. All right, let's move on to the next segment. Don't go away.
All right. Yeah, anyway, hi, I'm Cat Bailey, Editor-in-Chief of US Gamer and host of Axe of the Blood God. And we are doing a live segment for our podcast, Axe of the Blood God. And joining me, of course, is Nadia Oxford and Eric Van Allen, who've been on the podcast or in the stream already. And we have a special guest. Who is that? Hi, I'm Alex, Alex Donaldson. Uh, I am found usually on VG247.com, which is, of course, a sibling site of US Gamer. And I also um, am the co-founder of RPG Site, which does exactly what you would think, covers role-playing games. So it's always fun to be on this podcast because it's very much my wheelhouse. Uh, second appearance by yeah. Alex. This is very exciting. He was on my uh, panel as well at uh, at PAX, unless that's what you're referring to. Uh, ah, yes, the third, oh. technically, yeah, yeah. That was a fun. That was a fun little uh, panel. Basically, we talked about all the environments and the vanilla Final Fantasy VII release and just how well constructed they were. So that's also semi relevant to the current age we are living in. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's funny to think about that in light of the remake. Remember when we went to places and, <laughs> and sat together shoulder to shoulder? Yeah. What hey, traveling? Man. What is that? Hey, I, I was when? talking to someone earlier, not, not to derail us, but I was talking to someone earlier today, um, a PR person, and they were like, we would have been in LA today. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about yeah. that on the Mario Kart stream. We were in the just... airport level, like, wow, what, what's this about? Is this Fantasia? <laughs> yeah. I, and surely, I mean, do you think they would have delayed E3? I mean, surely they couldn't have if all of the... If everybody was showing up, but can you just imagine how insane it would have been trying to go to the LA Convention Center while and armies and armies and armies of cops were everywhere? Excuse me, tanks. They're they're using the the, the army's using the LACC as a as a staging area, right? So they would have had to, I guess. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, what a crazy time we live in. And on that note, we're doing an episode that I, I think is fairly topical, and that is social commentary in rpgs i think rpgs as a genre have always have wanted to do social commentary at least since the 1990s maybe even as far back as the 1980s uh, it's an interesting topic like we were able to find a lot of different examples and i think everybody kind of has something they want to bring up uh just as like a little background going back to my research it, it seems like the first game to have anything remotely resembling social commentary in RPGs, I suppose, would be maybe Ultima 4, which is one of the exam earliest examples of a dialogue tree. Supposedly, so Richard Garriott was getting a lot of trouble for having these very violent kind of brutal RPGs where you're killing monsters and everything. So he was like, all right, well, I'm going to make an RPG in which you find the ruins of virtue and you don't have monsters to fight and they're going to be dialogue trees and people react to how you treat them. And from that, I would say an entire category of RPG would steadily blossom. And then once mm -hmm. we got into the 90s, places like Bioware have generally come up. Uh, we've seen so many examples through the years of RPGs that have had commentary on economic disparity, corporations, sexuality, uh, but not so much race. And when they have tackled race, it's been a little embarrassing, <laughs> hasn't yeah, it? Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the first examples uh, when I was doing my research on this was I was reminded that Deus Ex Mankind Divided had robot apartheid. Hog oh, <laughs> lives was... matter. Yeah. That was really, really oh, embarrassing. Man. I feel like that was like, I, I, don't, I don't know this, but I've always felt like that was like a one line pitch that they used internally that just stuck. I can't see how they ever <laughs> decided to go with that. It just seems... When I was doing the research, uh, 
it was interesting. The Mass Effect Andromeda developers actually got into it on Twitter with the Deus Ex Mankind Divided developers, and they were directly asking the Deus Ex developers, were you guys trying to invoke uh, Black Lives Matters with this? And they were like, absolutely not. It was purely a coincidence. This oh, game has been on. in development for more than five years. Yeah, and okay. BioWare is going, really? Well, really? <laughs> well, of course, don't forget, um, Human Revolution had that one homeless lady character that was a hugely racist caricature and caused a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't even their first brush uh, with that rebooted version of that series. Which is so weird because, like, when I think of Deus Ex, I didn't like Mankind Divided very much for a lot of reasons. But uh, one thing that I thought Mankind Divided did really well was some of its side quests that handled things like pharmaceuticals and stuff like that. Like, very surprisingly good takes on that stuff. And then all of a sudden they just throw some stuff in there that either, yeah, it was thrown in for whatever's sake or they're just like, oh, well, it has some similarities, but we've been developing this for five years. How can we predict that? Like, no, come on, come on, come on. I have some ideas, but why do you think that RPG teams have so often defaulted to kind of caricatures or stereotypes when they do attempt to tackle race in their RPGs? So, uh, cowardice. I mean, not in a bad way. <laughs> I don't just, know how well, cowardice. Not in a bad, not in a, like a, a bad way. They just don't want to like. Let's face it. A lot of development teams are are white dudes, and that's fine. Except you know, we are getting to the point where. Thankfully, uh, there are, you know, more people of color in the development uh, seat, but, you know, maybe they just don't want to really offend anyone. So they just kind of come up with the characters and uh, the stand-ins and sometimes it does work. I will be talking of my my own experience soon. Uh, Sometimes it doesn't. So I'm not saying it's like terrible. I'm just saying like maybe they just don't really want to screw it up. So I think I think that's definitely a part of it. But a big thing I think is, and I don't want to put this all on one man, um, but I think to a degree, Lord of the Rings and Tolkien are a huge part of this conversation in the regard that he uh, he wrote racial allegory into those stories. Those stories defined Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons defined RPGs. And so some of the tropes you get where dark elves are used as a as, as an allegory for sort of more tribal people um literally in in some games very literally they go well the the high elves are the white people are they the europeans and the dark elves are the africans and all that stems from tolkien and i think that's not even not even just in games i, I, I don't know if you guys know um there's a youtuber uh, Lindsay Ellis and she did a yeah. video essay she on yes, on yeah, Bright yeah. the terrible cop orc movie yeah. and in that there's yeah. a section where she talks about about Tolkien and the influence it had on that film and I think you can transpose a lot of what she says there to Skyrim to uh, mm-hmm. Dragon Age and even then from there to Mass Effect and stuff like that so yeah I think it's not you know it sounds horrible to say it's all this one dude's fault <laughs> <laughs> Talking, but but I mean that's that's not too dissimilar from the way that Lovecraftian fiction got totally. so unable yeah. to see its own like racial biases. And in that case, like Lovecraft was, I, I'm sorry if this is a shock to someone out there hearing it, but Lovecraft was not a good person, <laughs> and no, he's just a good there. writer. And Art, no, arguably about that, but um, I feel Ooh, like in taking shots at Lovecraft. Look, I'm just I'm just saying. Uh, 
but it's that same thing of like if even if you're not just uh you know trying to make those stereotypes but if you just kind of take that fiction that setting and be like well i'm going to make my version of it and you don't interrogate like Mm -hmm. what those things are you don't think of it beyond set dressing you're just going to end up repeating all that same stuff and that's what we keep seeing over and over is people Mm -hmm. lift those ideas without interrogating them properly and i mean it it happens in some of my favorite games and it's always it's always a bummer that's why like when i was playing skyrim i had a very very strange moment where of course you have the the storm cloaks who are like skyrim is for the nords period and i was riding my horse along the path one day and i see a black guy like walking along the path and i stop and i talk to him and he's like yeah i'm joining the nords because they know that like you know skyrim is for the nords and i'm like it is very very strange like to have a a black person talk to me about an allegory for white supremacy uh (laughs) they could have thought that through a little bit better going back to token it wasn't just the orcs it was the easterlings as well which was i mean really solidifies a, a lot of the racial caricatures but not to excuse token but it was also the 1940s that stuff was rife throughout fiction in mm-hmm. general it's just... yeah it really was uh i mean i it... would propose go ahead nadia i was gonna say we could have let's talk for like six hours about c.s lewis alone yeah <laughs> oh god <laughs> i think what's interesting i don't have time to talk about c.s lewis <laughs> what i would actually propose that especially in the 90s and 2000s you had developers who were getting a lot more ambitious in their storytelling and this especially goes for bioware and this goes for the vampire the masquerade developers Mm -hmm. and they really want to have social commentary and they really want to like start to dig into this stuff but in case in a lot of cases maybe the discourse wasn't that as developed as it is now uh there are a lot of pitfalls and mistakes that people would fall into even when they were relatively well-intentioned it was uh, the writing could be kind of second tier no offense to some of the talented folks who are working on these games and when you have second tier writing, you start to easily fall back into tropes that have now been kind of discarded as racist, especially, I mean, you look at Vampire the Masquerade, Bloodlines, and you have like practically every racist trope you can possibly think of from Chinatown to the way that it ha- handles its black characters. Mm-hmm. And that's a game that wanted to have social commentary in it. Yeah, and it's it's tough because like I am a massive bloodlines fan i've said that like multiple times over but playing that game also means accepting that is of its time and it's a it's something that i'd love to see bloodlines to tackle a little bit more they've been out Mm -hmm. there saying that they want to address the realities of seattle the homeless issues especially and the way that different sections of seattle are divided up by class and and the tech uh corporations that moved in there but like you said, you've got to be able to to interrogate the things, not just that you're portraying, but what you've done in the past. And I think that's one of the harder things. Like Dragon Age has same issues where Dragon Age Origins has some real rough stuff in it with portrayals <laughs> of of different species and very like Tolkien-esque stuff that I felt even through Inquisition, they were still trying to find a way to do right and do right by. And mm-hmm. they're still they're still getting there. Yeah, um, I actually, uh, when the first Dragon Age came out, or was about to come out, I actually interviewed Gator for a magazine. I can't remember what magazine it was. It was so long ago. And he was talking to me about how basically the elves are an allegory for a lot of oppressed people, uh, mainly the Jews. I believe he himself, he told me he was Jewish or he had relatives who had been caught up in the Holocaust or something of that matter. 
Uh, I believe now he's a little bit, he said on Twitter not that long ago, he's a little bit regretful of trying to kind of shoehorn all these social pro, uh, social problems into one race and, and make them like a representative for people with problems. I think that's always I mean, the it risk. It goes back to the old Star Trek thing, right? The planet yeah. of the hats. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's that's always the risk. It's sort of like, you know, t- to use the Elder Scrolls comparison again, you have uh, the, you've got the Red Guards, right? And they're the black people. And the thing I yeah. always thought mm-hmm. was really yeah. interesting, and this was something that caught me at the time, is like in Oblivion, if you play as a Red Guard, you get like a minus 10 penalty to, I think, intelligence and willpower. Ooh, ouch. That's um, uh, all the Well, all the races obviously have these mm-hmm. these negative stats of some description, but basically they, they made the black race fast, and they got the adrenaline rush <laughs> skill, oh, <dear>. um, <laughs> but they made them too stupid to use magic, basically. Um, and they stepped Ooh. off this in Skyrim, but this is sort of when you talk about this stuff and RPGs, you've got the story stuff, and then you've got the gameplay stuff. And the gameplay stuff was they bought in directly from D and D, and in the modern age now, people don't want to do that anymore. In fact, the thing I'd say is, and I think this, I don't know if you guys feel like this is true for Dragon Age as well, but I think certainly for Mass Effect, there's lots of racism allegory in those games, but they never want to make the player experience it. So in Mass Effect, you get very mild incidences of of Turians or whoever being racist towards humans, being biased against humans. But when they get into the real race allegory, it's Tali or someone else. They don't want the player to to feel and experience that. And that's the problem with a role-playing game and these sorts of, well, with all video games and these sorts of allegories is you don't, is they don't want people to feel bad, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think there's one very notable exception to that in recent memory that we actually have on our little Google Docs here, and that's Disco Elysium, Mm. which is a game where if you want to be a crypto-fascist, you can be a crypto-fascist. Like, there was a very good article on fanbite i believe where someone literally played through the game to see what all of if you played it's just the most racist terrible character that you could to see what that looked like and there's that game is fascinating to me because it does actually try to say what if we just let the player be the player and we didn't play this game of okay well the player has to be right like the player has to be on the good side. We have to like have that separation of if we're talking about social commentary, it's one step removed from the player. So that way they're never going to feel awkward about like, oh, I made a choice here that I don't feel good about. And this maybe like says something about me. Like in Disco Elysium, it was like, cool, just be who you are. The game's going to react. People who don't like that are going to tell you that. People who are like that are going to agree with you. Probably make you feel bad if you're playing that way uh, on intention just to see what it's like. Like, that's one of my favorite parts about Disco Elysium in general is that that game just kind of lets you be you and and follow that down the rabbit hole as far as it goes. And it's just, it holds a mirror up to you, and sometimes that mirror can be a little uncomfortable, can it? <laughs> yeah, yep. a little bit. Yep. And when it comes to talking about uh, race and being racist in, a, in an RPG, I think another interesting example is maybe Mass Effect, a game where you're not necessarily racist against other humans, but you are racist against aliens who mm-hmm. yeah. in, I mean, there is a definite human supremacy element to it, which is yeah. embodied by the character of Ashley. And you straight up at the end of the first Mass Effect can choose 
do you want to put humans in power <laughs> or do you want to kind of continue to have the egalitarian diverse uh un style thing right that is a legitimate choice in the game <laughs> yeah. yeah that's that's sort of crazy to think about now <laughs> yeah and they even set it up throughout the whole game like um my my own podcast shout out to norm dfm uh, <laughs> um we we talked about this when we played mass effect one but the that game is so intent on showing you what the world looks like from the human point of view because mm. you have multiple <laughs> humans yeah no poe is here he always comes to voice his support for for bioware stuff he, he likes to talk on norm dfm a lot um it's very interested in showing you how humans view everything mm. and by the end of it like you're given all these options to like hey you can hang up on the council you don't need the council you're a rebel cop you don't you're jack bauer you don't take no uh orders from anybody so it almost i feel like the first time i played that game i felt set up to want to put in the human council because i was like yeah they didn't know what i was doing <laughs> i i knew the reapers were coming i knew it and i put a if i put a council there that knows what i'm doing then they're gonna know oh okay i'm starting to see the problems now <laughs> but the interesting thing is the interesting thing is even in that first game they have an in-universe human supremacist group who are the enemy yes. who then even when you go to work for them are still the enemy and i feel like and maybe this is the difference between 2006 and, and 2010 12 whenever the third one came out yeah um is that they it feels like they backpedal on that hard by the time you hit the third game and it's like udina becomes a guy that has to go regardless of whether you're paragon or renegade so mm -hmm. it feels and i think in that sense you can almost trace some of the movements around around that sort of storyline across a generation across those three games yeah but by the time we also hit mass effect 3 it leans really heavily into the jack bauer slash 24 style yeah. Uh, yeah tropes in the you're the one person with a gun who's gonna solve everything <laughs> and oh, all these time. people weren't listening to you but here you are ready to be the hero yep. we wrote an article about this over on us gamer you should go check it out uh now mass effect's one big ball of uh, kind of interesting issues that come from not only not only being developed when it was but also having multiple directors mm -hmm. who had very distinct creative visions for that mm -hmm. series i feel i think there's also you could probably have a whole separate podcast talking about andromeda and colonialism <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> have i got a podcast for you <laughs> so yeah um, yeah anyway what were we gonna say uh eric when we were talking about uh, colonialism and mass effect andromeda oh man we want to talk about colonialism in bioware style games we can talk mass effect andromeda we can talk uh dragon age 2 we can mm -hmm. talk greedfall boy you want to talk about a recent game that really tripped over its own feet in that regards oh boy um you want to talk about monster hunter world oh my god yeah, yeah right it's, yeah. they literally refer to it as the new world virgin territory unconquered nobody here Hi, nobody living here. on this no this you don't spot. i mean look there's a new mmo coming out from amazon right new world or it's like it's in yeah. alpha or whatever right now and that one is, is just that, straight up does like, that still exist yes it, it does theoretically still exist okay as much as an amazon game does ever exist uh and theoretically that Th that game is just like hey you want to you want to live the colonialist lifestyle you want to <laughs> do all that stuff man oh 
sign on up, head on out here. And I don't know what the answer is for how to do that sort of story well. I honestly don't. And I've thought about this so much because I think I've been on podcasts like, talking about it. But well, here's I an idea. Make the player as take on the role of an indigenous person having yeah. to deal yeah. with invading people coming to their land. Video there goes games the can create empathy. There you go. Sorry, my cat just knocked over my Nintendo Switch. <laughs> um, he's he's also he's also getting irate about all these terrible themes in games. Uh, I like look if you want to throw out a game that for all its like terrible faults did at least try to put you in the shoes of an indigenous person. Like Assassin's Creed Three, at least tried. It attempted. Oh, right. It made an yeah. attempt. Yeah. Did they... it land the shot? but it made an attempt i do admire uh, the fact that they try to do some research like at first they're going to have uh the characters living in teepees and whatnot and it's like no those care they lived in longhouses so they like researched mm -hmm. that at least uh, you, but i hear it kind of went to hell for the dlc i didn't really play the dlc you know if you're talking about games that do that do that sort of thing right um we're talking earlier about and it's not an rpg but we're talking earlier about feeling uncomfortable right like probably the only game that's done that uncomfortable thing with any real thrust behind it is the third mafia game where they had you know you would be told to leave certain areas of town and if you committed a crime in certain areas of town that were white areas the police response would be quicker and more aggressive than if you did those exact same crimes in a black area of town mm -hmm. but this is what i mean it's like you know in a role-playing game despite the fact that in elder scrolls or dragon age you can create your character to be whatever it doesn't really end up mattering does it and most of those most of those games like stuff like mass effect you're not really i'm always hesitant to talk about how much role playing it has because you do get to define shepherd but shepherd will always be some things at the yeah, end of the day shepherd. and there's like a lever of... okay you're not to monitor over now um there's a level of like homogeneity that comes with playing a shepherd or even like a warden or a hawk yeah that I think one of the things that Dragon Age Origins did really well was it let you play as different origins and see some of those things firsthand. So like when I played the City Elf Origin in Dragon Age Origins, that game starts with you dealing with living in the alienage and having these like dukes uh, or, or like princes come down and say like, hey, we're going to take some of the women here, some of the brides, and they're going to come party with us. And you can't do anything about it because we are the human rulers up in the fancy town and you are the city elves and the alienage. You don't get a say in it. Like that game opens that way mm. if you play it. So like I've always said that I want to see a Mass Effect where you can play as a different race, not just to see like what looks different when you're not playing a human character anymore versus now you're playing Asari, now you're playing Solarian, now you're playing Turian. But I think that's going to let you tell more stories like that in that universe because suddenly your whole viewpoint is not human centric. I would love to see them do that, but if I'm honest, I I would be astonished. And if they did do it, it would definitely be you would have to play an Asari because they at least look human-ish and they, you know, can visually yeah. appeal to a certain type of person. I mean, they're all That's... they're all bipedal human esque yeah. characters. Like, I, you know, yeah, they all Turian, Turian, Krogan. I feel like you could easily swap some. Obviously, you What's know, the one doing that like always talks in third person and sounds Elcor. extremely tired. And... Yeah, I'm all about that. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would play. As I want, one of I want to play as Krogan. <laughs> I want, I like yeah, Krogan. Would be fun. I would, would love a, a game Krogan. about Krogan set before the genophage was theoretically cured, uh, and you're having to see what the ramifications of that are like. 
and and understand it more because that's another one of those man we did a podcast one time at pack south where uh we asked the room like who actually stopped the genophage from being cured and there was one guy and i've never seen a crowd in a room turn on somebody that fast just all the heads turning at once that dude that dude got out of there (laughs) nope ask for it though he did he did because there is only one choice there's only one choice well, before we move on really quickly, Nadia, I know that you wanted to talk about Valkyria Chronicles because uh, you have a, a unique perspective on this because you are Jewish and yeah. you wrote a really good article about how it handled the dark sin and that kind of thing. Uh, for reference, the dark sin in Valkyria Chronicles are basically like everybody's very racist to them and they are the stand in for Jewish folks in that game. Uh, what's yeah. your perspective on it? Well, just to, to kind of set the table here, uh, Valkyria Chronicles does take place in a universe that is ours, but alternate. So we are talking about... Uh, it's basically World War II. It is. A fantastical World War II. It is, exactly. So you do, of course, has, as I said in my article, Jews were kind of a big deal in World War II. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the thing I actually... Some people will disagree with me. I actually really liked the way Darkson are represented as Jews in Valkyria Chronicles. Because number one... You do not see Jewish characters in Japanese-made games, like, practically ever. I think the only one I can think of off the top of my head is uh, Otakon, Otakon from uh, Metal Gear Solid. Uh, maybe, uh, I always said the Silverberg family from Su- Suikoden is Jewish. I claim them just because I can. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so I was like, when I saw these Darkson, when I played Valkyria Chronicles for the first time, I said, oh god, here we go. Because even though there is Jewish representation in media, it's really not the best. It is very singular. People say, oh, okay, I saw that one episode of Rugrats, so I know what Passover is all about. They don't know that there are Jews in, in all sorts of many different races, many different colors. There are like the Sephardic Jews, the Natari Jews, like there's a whole a whole bunch of tribes and, and what have you. So the thing I did like about the Darkson and the way they were represented is, yes, you did encounter them in concentration camps because that is another thing way Jews are represented as victims a lot. But in... Valkyrie Chronicles, the Dark Sin also fought, fight alongside you. They are brilliant mechanics. They are uh, great fighters. They are, it's kind of like Inglorious Bastards. You don't see too many instances where Jews are allowed to come out and fight against their oppressors. So I like the fact they did that. Um, I also really like the fact that the Dark Sin have a very strong bond with each other. And that's, you know, Ashkenazi white Jews do have a, a big problem with racism. I will absolutely admit that. But we all also have a very strong bond where, you know, I was kind of raised, not really orthodox, but I, I do know the, the more, like, religious side of, of, of Judaism. But I can talk to, like, I had a boss who was a humanistic Jew, which is totally different from what I was raised, but we could still talk on a level that nobody else could really understand around us if they weren't Jewish. So um, the Darkson bond in that game, I think that was really well done. Um, and here's what I really, really liked. The darks, the people in your troops, the good guys, they could be extremely racist towards Darkson and have a, a, an actual detriment called Darkson Hater, where they wouldn't fight alongside the Darkson. Because you learn as the game goes on, they don't know very much about the Darkson beyond uh, the stereotypes, the legends, like, oh, they're bad luck, oh, they, they smell bad, I think that was, that was one of them. Uh, but as they get to know the Darkson, some of them, not all of them, eventually kind of open up and realize, okay, hey, these are just human beings like me. Um, 
I just like the fact the game acknowledged that good guys can be racist, can be anti-Semitic, can have these hang-ups that they might get over, but might not. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciated that because uh, I consider myself a, a very, very strong ally of social justice, but a lot of Jews in my position will tell you we don't always feel welcome in the social justice movement because uh, when you come right down to it, a lot of people never met Jews. And I took, it took a very, very long time for me to realize that because I've always lived in Jewish neighborhoods. I've always felt comfortable in them, I guess, for obvious reasons. Once I moved out of one for the first time, I realized I there there's a certain alienness here that I don't understand. And I would meet people who who just never met a Jew before. I'm like, you never met a Jew? <laughs> just like, and uh, the final thing I will say that I think they did got really right about the Darkson is that the Darkson come in different races. Uh, in my mm. party, I had an Asian Darkson. I think there was a black one. I think, you know, there was a, an older one. And of course, as I said before, Jews do come in, in many different colors. We are a very complicated people to define, I suppose. Like where people say, are you a race? No, we're not. We're ethno-religious, I think is the term that people use. So yeah, I just had to give a, a shout out to, to Sega for bringing that representation to the fore. I'm a little disappointed we didn't get more of it in the the recent game that came out. Was it four? I can't remember what number four. it was. Yeah, four. 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 Yeah. There was just one character who was a Darkson, but it definitely wasn't like part of the, the social commentary the way it was in the first one. So yeah, uh, I thought that was actually well done. One thing that I think RPGs have kind of been more successful at, maybe, uh, versus race, is talking about kind of... Uh, economic disparity and especially yeah. and mm-hmm. i think the the most obvious example of that recently is final fantasy 7 remake mm-hmm. and alex i'm going to want to get your thoughts on this in a second because obviously mm-hmm. you played it you have very strong thoughts about it mm-hmm. i think everybody here has played it maybe not eric i don't know i, I beat it i beat it oh, okay so yeah i wrote an article about the politics of final fantasy 7 remake and i was kind of wondering if they were going to shy away from a lot of the commentary on especially, you know, corporatism, uh, you know, economic disparity, that kind of thing. But in fact, they leaned into it. And I was really surprised. Were you surprised, Alex? I was surprised, but because it's a, uh, because it's a multi-part project, right? Um, there are elements of it that I am deeply curious to see where they go. I mean, obviously, Barrett is the, is the crux of this whole of this whole storyline right and what's interesting spoilers for the original final fantasy 7 here um is that later in final fantasy 7 the, the further in you get barrett sort of comes around a little bit and it's really interesting in the context of things that are going on in the world right now that barrett the eco warrior who sees only being able to do things through force by the end of the original game is saying actually we were going about it in the wrong way <laughs> and so although i'm really I, like i'm really pleased with the execution in the remake i love i think probably one of my favorite scenes in the game is and it's an optional scene i think no it's not actually it's not but when you go up shinra tower and you see the normal people who work for shinra and tifa sort of says these are normal people with families just like us and barrett sort of has his response to that um that's one of the best scenes in the game what'll be really interesting is where they take it from here because the the easy path is to sort of do what the original game did without much nuance and just say you know have the characters come around and say actually blowing people up was wrong in the back half but it would be nice given these games are expanded to see them really get into that a bit more 
but yeah, the game is, you know, in terms of the use of... Uh, uh, that story is more relevant than ever, right? The the economic disparity, the haves and the have-nots. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so hard to talk about that game because it's only such a tiny fragment of the story. Yeah, <laughs> but, it really is, isn't it? My, my question is, and again, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been playing a lot of Dragon Age 2 recently, but... Like, does that stuff carry over well once you move outside the realm of Midgar? Because in Midgar, it's really easy to, like, visualize what that economic disparity looks like, right? You can literally show, here is the lower class, they are below everyone else, you have to climb up, you have to go higher to get to the rich class. Same with, like, Kirkwall in Dragon Age 2, where they literally are like, hey, here's Low Town, Dark Town, High Town, the Chantry's up there, the mages are down here, we're showing you what this disparity looks like. Do you still have things to do that? I, granted, okay, full full disclosure, I have not played the original Final Fantasy VII, so I'm asking this as a genuine question. Can you still display that without the city of Midgar without, as the soul setting? Without getting too spoilery, um, the, next, the, the next major location that the story of that game goes to is structured exactly like Midgar. There's a low town and a high okay. town. <laughs> and then later on in the game, you sort of, so imagine there's a mining town that was mining like coal and, mm. mid- oh, okay. and Shinra come along and they build a, ma- a marker reactor and in doing so they destroy the economy of that town. And so you see a lot of that sort of stuff through the complete story of Final Fantasy VII but make no mistake, all that stuff does take a definite backseat once you leave Midgar. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, because I, I actually forgot about North Corel and I'm really mm-hmm. interested to see what they do with that. That was a I very... feel like if anything, yeah. uh, the images of North Corel have been sharpened even more strongly as coal mining, especially in places like West Virginia, have like totally fallen off. You can draw a really bright line between those two things, and so. But uh, pl- applause to Square Enix for not yeah. shying away from this stuff and leaning into it. If anything, making it even stronger. Uh, good for well, that. Well, also when we're talking, of... so so I just want to say when we're talking about representation they did a fantastic job with Barrett in the remake, like a ridiculously mm. good job. I mean, that I loved him. They found a way to take the original Japanese, which was a much less caricatured version of a black man. And the English translation, which was a deeply character, like character, just a complete caricature, Mr. T, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and to marry those together and bring something new to the character. And although I know not everybody is keen on the, the, the voice they chose, the sort of preacher, sort of soulful preacher voice. Um, I think they did fabulously. <laughs> I think he grows a lot as the game goes on. Uh, one thing mm. I noticed later in the game, he's without his sunglasses a lot, and you can see his eyes, and they're actually very, very gentle. Uh, whereas in the opening of the game, where he's all like street preacher, as you say, that's when he has his sunglasses on, and that's when he's all like, oh, damn the consequences. We got to do what we got to do. So yeah, they re- they really develop him well as the game goes on. Yeah, he's brilliant. I think my favorite detail in the game is the post-battle banter between him and Cloud, where at the start yeah, of the game, yeah. he sort of um, he sort of pops off something, and Cloud goes whatever. And then in the back <laughs> half of the game, Cloud says to him like, "Well done." And he's like, "It's nothing." So they sort of reverse yeah. roles. It's really cool. <laughs> I think it helps that. Uh, Barrett in Final Fantasy VII Remake isn't one-dimensional. I mean, he's introduced to you as a political radical, somebody who will fight to his utmost to 
to save the planet, but he's also a, a really devoted father, very like devoted to his community. You get a strong sense of pathos from his past. You don't really know what happened, mm-hmm. but you get the sense that something really bad did happen that really informs his character. And so in that respect, there's stuff to dig into. And it also helps that he's a deeply sympathetic character as well. Like a lot of the most emotional scenes in Final Fantasy VII Remake go to Barrett. So yeah. in that respect, I think he's kind of a triumphant character. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the Corel prison scene plays out when he meets yeah. with that person. Yeah, like like that scene probably, yeah, that like that is interesting both from the impact of Shinra and the haves and the have-nots perspective and from the Barrett's backstory perspective Mm -hmm. another area that's ripe for sort of expansion for that sort of stuff um is uh is it gongaga is that how they pronounce it gongaga yeah yeah that's obviously a nothing area in the original game but we now know from other stuff that that's a really important place um and it's that is also a really demonstrative place of why shinra is terrible (laughs) yeah that's um that's that's a very interesting place to visit at first yeah because just to fill you in, like in the in the vanilla game, when you visit Gongaga, it's it, it's a, a town that a, an accident, a, sh- a reactor went off or something, and it killed a bunch of people and poisoned others, and it's just a really, really dark, damp place. So and it's Chernobyl. Yeah, it's exactly yeah, it's exactly what it's it like, is. It's, and Shinra a... basically left them at the place and the people to kind of fend for themselves. Like, oh well, this isn't our problem. Speaking of uh, Chernobyl type incidents, I mean Persona Five took place mm. after the 2011 Tohoku earthquake. And when I say take place after, it developed in the wake mm-hmm. of. And I mean, if you want to talk about a game that had a ton of social commentary, uh, that's a big one. I, I assume you finished it, Alex? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think for what it's worth, I think Persona has always been pretty good. Well, not always. Yes. But I think the third game and the fourth game have always had a had a crack at it. Crack's pretty good is a bit harsh. Is a bit is a bit <laughs> too too kind. But they've always had might a, be a little strong. But they've always they've oh. always had a crack at it. Yeah. And I think four I think five is probably about as good at, at that as four was. I just think that it's far more overt. Put it that way. But um, it's mixed. <laughs> Persona and social commentary do not mix well in my in my thought in my brain because. As much as I love Persona, I've said it before, but it feels like every game is like one step forward, two steps back in terms of it being able to tackle like heavy mm, issues. Because yeah. I mean, at least in Royal, like the 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 localizers went out of their way to try and fix some of that stuff that they had with the two yeah. mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. gay male characters that hit on Ryuji, but it still feels really strange that like persona 3 had to get basically a remake for you to play as a female main character that there hasn't yeah. been uh gay rom- like queer romances in that game since i believe persona 2 is the only one that i think persona yeah 2 is the, the fact one that, that they took it. it out is really really bad i mean come on i i want to i want to date ryuji and, and yes yeah. like those those games are all especially with persona 5 it, it was the one that hurt a little bit the most because the whole setup of that was like break society standards break society's chains we are the rebels we're not going to conform to any standard that you have but also like here's some stereotype characters that are going to come in for like comedic effect uh to hit on ryuji so you can be like haha ryuji doesn't like that ha it's like wow. oh 
that's what it gets back to games that really want to have social commentary but end up falling into the trap of having uh, stereotypes but, yeah. and unfortunately like persona 5 had easy gay panic jokes but also it had a lot of instances where it seemed genuinely angry about you know the people in power at every level of society mm-hmm. yeah and you saw it in the honest politician who is trying to break back uh, in but the anime, government is anime bernie, anime sanders. bernie sanders yeah <laughs> or bernie but also yeah i love that but also even in even in four you feel like i feel like at least persona is always like it's 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 this far from it's so close to doing something special or significant with with kanji with nalto and then it fumbles it <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Kat and I yeah. have talked extensively on Acts of the Blood God about how badly they fumbled Kanji because that's a, that's a big disappointment. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So they always try. I feel like it's lesson. I feel like I feel like it's not tough. Like Akechi is right there. I'm telling you, an Akechi romance social link in Royal would have been so good. It would have been yeah, we talked so about that good. Too. I don't. I yeah, I, term, I agree. That very R rated. Uh, interestingly, we've like mostly talked about Persona because I think that's the one that a lot of people are familiar with. When I put out, when I asked people like if they had examples of good side quests and RPGs that uh, have good social commentary, at Bella Blondeau said a lot of the stuff in Shin Megami Tensei Four actually. Mm. So if you're not yeah. familiar with SMT Four, uh, you end up in a post-apocalyptic version of Tokyo eventually. Um, it's very hardcore old school SMT. Uh, that whole game is concerned with struggling under the effects of gentrification and class discrimination, mm-hmm. and most of the side quests give you further insight into that. Do any of you guys manage to finish SMT4? Because, man, that game was a lot. It's <laughs> yeah, I, know, I, I never played it. Uh, I played Strange it. Journey Redux was my first uh, Shin Megami Tensei. What did you say, Alex? I played a bunch of it, but I did not finish it. Yeah, because <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of video games. <laughs> it's a huge Intense. game. It is a, it is a lot. I mean, I feel like we can sit here and we can go through so many more RPGs. I mean, we never even talked about the Ten Penny Tower stuff mm-hmm. in Fallout Three, for example. Because it's bad. But we're... <laughs> <laughs> why, why is it bad? Uh, like, actually, really quickly, I want to know. Why is it bad? I mean, look, there there are people out there who have gone on much longer screeds about this. If you want to mm-hmm. hear about it, you can check out like H Bomber guy has a really great video about Fallout Three and stuff like that. Um, but I just always found that. Like I, I think the Bethesda fallouts in particular have always just kind of looked at those things as like, oh, you get a choice. Isn't it wild that you can blow up this town? That's crazy. Oh, and like, yeah. I don't see it as being effective commentary. I just see it as being, we gave the players choices because that's neat and choices are fun things. Whereas like, I, I don't know, New Vegas tried. This, like I like New Vegas the most out of all the 3D fallouts. And I feel like it did more to try and develop choices that meant something versus just choices for choice sake i don't know i think megaton is one of the better examples of choices in a fallout game like that's the one that everybody always remembers but they remember it because a nuclear bomb you remember it because because you can set a nuclear bomb off right you remember it because you can blow a town <laughs> you don't off forget that <laughs> remember it's, it because it's cool it's, it's, it's the same as like fallout 76 when they were like you can nuke a village you can nuke a city it's like okay cool you can nuke a city like why is this something that we're like partying about and celebrating because it's like an epic gamer moment it sort of reminds me of the the meaningful the meaningful the meaningless uh racial commentary in like bioshock infinite that's the sort of that's exactly the same sort of level that fallout tends to dabble in as well 
where like you can look at it and go, wow, you can you can pelt the mixed race couple with a tomato, or you can not. Um, <laughs> or you can not. That's a re- that's a real example though. Uh, that's that that's a real that's thing that's in the first bad. ten minutes of Bioshock. Or Red Dead Redemption Two, where you can drag feminists around. Yeah, yeah. Can you? That's someone going yeah, out of their I, way to be a jerk. There's that's a whole not video series about gamified it. joke. That's there's just a guy on a on way. a street corner in Saint Denis who's like racist as hell, and you can actually kill him without penalty. Uh, people have lost suit him and thrown him in the water. So to wrap up, since we're running out of time, I no. I ask, I I put it to you guys: What can RPGs do to be better at social commentary in general, especially with Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven coming around? It's going to be a very interesting one to watch. Like. What would you like to see RPGs do to be better at social commentary? And I guess I'll start with Alex. Well, it's funny you mentioned Cyberpunk, right? Because Cyberpunk has a traditional role-playing game backgrounds, right? So that gives you the ability to come from... I, I don't know what the backgrounds are in that game, but that gives you the ability to potentially come from a background that is poor a background that is rich a background that is educated a background that is uneducated whatever and that inherently if executed right can lead to incredible an incredible amount of embodying of your character and through it social commentary but there's plenty of bad examples of that like you you pick this you pick something like that in mass effect and it comes up in precisely one quest in each game so you know i would like to see more of that obviously more you know a broader range of protagonists in the games that have a set protagonist will obviously help um and like i said i think in terms of making social commentary because role-playing games are about embodying a character many a lot of the time i think really what i would like to see is is developers not be afraid to do things that might make the player feel uncomfortable because if they feel uncomfortable, that means they're at least thinking about it. And this isn't just about, oh, show racism, allow the player to experience what it's like to be on the receiving end of a racist attack. This goes for everything, you know. It's, it's sort of like, it's like we said about Persona, like the concept of the game was about throw the shackles off society in the, in the trash. But actually... Nothing in that game really feels like that. You never feel ostracized in that game. And so that would be cool to see. Eric? I agree with all of what was said there. I'd like to see games... I mean, RPGs are built on systems, right? And I mm. want to see those systems try to actually tackle the way that a system is broken. Like, don't maybe look at ways to create systems that work against the player or challenge the player's biases and we can also talk about how studios just need to hire more diverse teams and bring on more diverse voices but if we're talking purely about in the game yeah like give you give you viewpoints that aren't something that we're used to Mm -hmm. i've spent my whole life playing characters that look like me because that was the default and then the games that always stick out to me are the ones that force me to think about what it wouldn't be like if i self-inserted into a game what would it be like if i played in someone else's mm-hmm. shoes so yeah it's developers less people that look like me somebody else get somebody else <laughs> nadia um i think just more straightforwardness and uh god forgive me because i'm gonna bring this game up again on actually the bug up for the 50th time illusion of gaia for the <laughs> snes by quintet was one of the only straightforward rpgs i can think of that sat down and talked about things like colonialism slavery mm-hmm. here are literally rich white people selling 
uh, young black children as slaves because they come from impoverished com- countries. Um, this is the sort of thing that they tackle just straight up. No, like, oh, these are bears and these are humans and they're being mean to the bears because this is an allegory. No, this was like one of the most, one of the things I remember most about that game is you start off and you go to the, the king and he's a jerk, of course. Uh, he's actually a, a colonialist. You, you you learn that straight up. And there are carpets in this in this in this nice castle, and one of the maids tells you, "Oh yeah, these these ca- these carpets take forty years to weave." And then you go much later in the game to a very poor desert town where there are literally children slaves weaving this carpet, and the man tells you, "Yep, yeah, this these children are weaving the carpet for this castle town way way overseas. They'll be at this all their lives. This is all they know, and they can't even talk because all they know is weaving this carpet." <laughs> there is actually they're talking about uncomfortable choices, uh, like Alex mentioned. In this game, you collect red jewels, and you need these red jewels to open up a, a major secret in the game. And if you miss a red jewel, too bad, you can't get it again in the game. There is one red jewel, where the only way you can get it is to sell out a slave who is hiding. So do you oh, wow. sell out the slave and get this jewel, or do you miss it entirely and just not be able to open up this massive secret in the game? So choices like that in an, in, the, in, in this age are practically unheard of. Mm-hmm. And in an SNES game, that was like... That took guts. And this is like a Japanese game by a Japanese uh, company uh, talking like really straightforward about racism, about colonialism. And Quintet was really, really ahead of his time. It's really a shame they're gone. Yeah, I think getting to what Nadia was saying, forcing players to make tough decisions that they really have to think on. And also leaning into one of the biggest strengths of the entire medium and uh, RPGs in general which is that it creates it's a genre that creates empathy because you are put into the shoes of a character in ways that go way beyond just I have a gun I'm pointing it at somebody or whatever like you have traits and personalities and you have to choose dialogue choices and it marries you to that character in ways that other genres don't and that's maybe a unique opportunity to speak to a lot of what's happening in society to really meaningfully have social commentary and rpg developers have tried in the past i think they've been held back a lot of the time by the fact that they're mass market products they're trying to sell a lot of copies they're afraid to take a lot of risks with these multi-million dollar games but at the same time i mean if you look at a game like cyberpunk it's a game that's going to sell millions upon millions upon millions of copies regardless Mm -hmm. And CD Projekt has all of the goodwill in the world, so hopefully they make good use of it. Okay, Nadia, we're back. And after that heavy conversation, let's talk about something a little more, a little lighter. And that is the track of the week. If you aren't familiar with the track of the week, each week we take a track from an rpg because you know music and rpgs they're, they're very important it really helps define the mood and things like that and this week we're taking a song request it's from divinity original sin 2 see if you recognize this song
yep, that is the Queen's High Seas, which is Beast's theme in Divinity Original Sin 2. Uh, the request comes from Anarcho Gamer, who sent me a message. Thanks, Anarcho Gamer. They say, uh, Composer Boroslav Slavov does a great job in this game, and the song in particular captures the tense danger, epic scale, whimsy, and charm of Divinity Original Sin 2. Aside from being Beast's theme, a lighter version of the Queen's High Seas plays in the Driftwood Tavern and amps up when you're in battle. Fits so well in the fight you get into after sleeping with the lizard sex worker who sleeps with you <laughs> in order to set up and steal your stuff. Here's the Ooh. track. <laughs> it's very good. It's very like sea, sanch- sea shanty-ish, isn't it, Nadia? Yes, it is. It's very sea shanty-ish. It's also very energetic. It has like a, it's a very meaty track. Like it's just full of like a lot of like swinging and, and hitting and good sounds it's, 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 it's a track full of good sounds and there's my music criticism for you <laughs> i imagine standing with an accordion and just rocking back and forth playing the song yeah like um i believe the the fellow who composed it is from bulgaria and that's is that east uh, i'm sorry i'm really bad at geography is that east europe eastern europe yeah that is eastern europe it, it does have that that sound because like hmm my family is Hungarian and it kind of has that like there's a certain familiarity to it when I was listening to it I immediately compared it to Warcraft 2 which yes that's interesting which has this very energetic medieval beat what 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 what, what do you want <laughs> I hate that song so boom, much I always I had Warcraft 2 and that game had red book audio so you know what you could do Nadia put it in your CD player that's right. That's what yes. and that's what I did. I That's what the nineties were all about. All my friends were listening to Nine Inch Nails and you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit and things like that. And I was listening to <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to, to the Warcraft two uh C D, which that's really okay. tells you about the person that I became today. I, I was always a little bit diverse with my music, not not extremely, but like my brother listened to a lot of rap, so I listened with him, and I listened to like a lot of Guns N' Roses. I was huge into Guns N' Roses, huge into U2. Yeah. I but didn't even I, know who, what Guns N' Roses were all about. I didn't know that Axel played for them. Uh, really? I didn't really know anything about them until GTA San Andreas. Welcome to the jungle, we got fun and games. Yep, pretty much. So good. Yeah. I, I mean, I heard about these uh musical groups when i was you know growing up obviously but i was deeply uncool and anybody who listened to uh this this popular music um <laughs> i did not listen to that i didn't listen to salt and pepper uh, boys to men boys to our our graduation song grade eight was end of the road i was like oh God, it was all like Aladdin themed because Aladdin had just come out to home video and that's how big of a deal home video was in like 1991 or two. I can't remember what year I graduated from grade eight. And now I see my classmates on Facebook going, going to Matchbox, Matchbox 20's reunion tour. Man, they were my favorite group in high school. I'm like, oh, you weren't actually that cool. Okay. I want to push you around. Well, I will. Well, I will. But getting back to Divinity Original Sin 2 after that little digression. Uh, yeah, I think this song really does a great job of fitting the overall mood of kind of adventure. I mean, one of the first things I, I mentioned that it was like a sea shanty. Like one of the first things you do in Divinity Original Sin 2 is you're on a boat. So I'm on a boat. Yeah, I got. I really got to play that game. I, I'm so mad at myself for not playing it yet. 
And if you're not familiar with Beast, uh, he's he's a dwarf. Yeah. Yeah, I saw his, I saw his like his picture, and he very much suits the the music that we were talking about right now. He has yeah. a big hammer. He does look quite uh, Warcraftish, to be honest with you. Yes. Uh, so if you decide to play as him, your failed rebellion against the queen nearly destroyed you. So you began a new life on the high seas. Now your old enemy is back. If you don't stop her, no one will. <laughs> evil queen. Gotta stop the evil queen. Default, will? default class is battle mage. And you can recruit him to the west of Fort Joy on the beach working on a shipwreck. So I I do like battle mages. I, I've always said I'm not a big fan of mages, but battle mages I can deal with. Yeah? Why is that? I don't know. I feel like I have if I have that backup, if something goes wrong with the magic, then I have, okay, I have a sword. That's why I always like red mages in Final Fantasy. Uh, do you play as dwarves in RPGs? Not often. Um, I was just never a big fan. Like, I always went for, like, I always, you know, one of my favorite races is if I can't play, like, a beast character, I always go for the half-elf. I always have yeah. a soft spot for them. See, after our discussion, you go for the, the, the race that's supposed to reflect white people? Half-elves? I always thought half-elves were kind of supposed to reflect, like, mixed-race people. Like, Oh, uh, okay. Is that how it goes? I think so. I don't know. When I think of half-elves, I think of Dragonlands, and that was always, like, they were always, like, an ostracized uh, sort of... Uh, uh, class, but that always made them very mm. good leaders because they were ostracized, but they were usually very, very like tempered and clever because of it. I don't play as dwarves because no. I I don't want a great big bushy beard on my character. Yeah, I know that I don't I don't want to sound racist against beards or something, but I'm just not, <laughs> I'm just not a big fan of dwarves. Yeah, I think that in general, I usually play as humans because I'm boring. I'm boring like that, and I almost never select humans. Really? Why not? Yeah, because they're boring. You just said it yourself. <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess they're an opportunity to self-insert into this fantastical world, right? Where that's fair. Yeah, it makes me. It makes it feel more grounded when I'm playing as a human character. It's a, kind of the same reason that I initially adopted Terran in StarCraft. Because that was just the race that I could immediately identify with. Uh, apparently rednecks. I don't know. <laughs> Yeehaw. That's actually very interesting. Yeah, because I, when I play Skyrim, I'm shuffling through everything. It's like, oh, Nord, no, uh, whatever, no, 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 no. Oh, a lizard person. I I'm on board. And the uh, same with fun. The problem with Skyrim's races is that most of them look terrible. They do look kind of terrible, yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to what we get. But with the improvement of the graphics from like Oblivion to Skyrim is, is still pretty good. When I look at an Argonian from uh, Oblivion, I'm like, oh, well, your face is made out of six polygons. That's great. <laughs> or a dark elf. Yeah. Dark elf, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be an elf in Skyrim. They look really bad. They do. And uh, they're, well, they're not boring. There's different races uh, of elves in Skyrim. And the ones, there's like the really high elves who are real jerks. What are they called? I can't remember their name, but they're, they're dicks. I would never play as them. All right, thanks to Anarcho Gamer for talking to us about Divinity Original Sin 2. I'm glad that we could finally get away from Japanese RPGs for track of the week. <laughs> yeah, I'm bad at that, so I'm going to have to rely on other people to do that for me. Well, if you want to suggest another track, uh, we strongly recommend it. We always enjoy doing that. All right, the episode ran long this week, so we're going to skip the mailbag, and we're just going to wrap up right now. Thanks to everybody for joining us on the live stream and uh, and. Uh, donating to Black Lives Matters. We made more than $5,000 uh, 
for Ooh. a good cause. It was it was excellent, and we really appreciate you coming by. Shout out to Eric Van Allen for putting that together. Hopefully, we can do more live Blood God episodes in the future, Nadia. Yeah, um, I actually did see quite a few comments saying that they were, that they enjoyed the uh, the live Blood God. So yeah, uh, we have done one before, I think, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I would I would like to do it again. It, it is fun. Yeah, I think we did live Blood God and. I think when we were wrapping up the Persona 4 Let's Play, back when we were doing the reports. Yes, that was a long time ago. Many moons ago, like at least way back in 2018, I think. Yes. Wow. Hard to believe. Multiple lifetimes ago, as we already said. Yes. All right. Just as a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. Our, our friend Alex uh, Donaldson, you should go check out his site, RPG site, and VG247. And he is on Twitter at AP Zone Runner. And Eric is at CMOOSI, S E A M O O S I. Thanks to everybody, all of our friends, all of our pals throughout the games industry who came on the show and supported us as we were raising money for Black Lives Matters. We'll be back next week, as always. Maybe we'll have some next gen games to talk about next week, huh, Nadia? <laughs> Yeah, who knows what next week will bring. I mean, it's anyone's guess at this point, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we are just starting to get settled into where we were. We're like, okay, we got a schedule now. We're going to see all these big reveals, and they're gone. Poof, and it's gone. (laughs) Yeah. I'm looking forward to the PS5 reveal. It should be a good one. Yeah, the the longer it takes, I guess, the more excited I get for it. I hadn't been thinking about it very much, but now I am. I I think we're going to see some cool stuff. Watch me be wrong. I absolutely agree. Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. And until then, for Nadia and Eric and Alex and myself, we'll see you next week. Happy adventuring. <laughs>